Well, I think, uh, I think we can all probably identify with the idea, or the, the feeling at least, of weakness at times in our lives, right? I mean, everyone experiences periods of weakness in one form or another at some point or another in their lives, whether it's physical or financial or emotional or something to do with our, our circumstances or relationships, perhaps, whatever, uh, whatever the case may be. We all experience moments of weakness in our lives. And for the Christian, those times when we feel the weakest tend to be the times that we seek God the most. And of course, uh, we should seek him in those times of trouble. In fact, in many of the Psalms, we find David doing just that, seeking after God in his darkest days, in his weakest moments. In uh, Psalm 63, which he wrote when he was in the wilderness of Judah, running for his life, he said, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. Then if you skip down toward the end of the psalm, down to verse 9, he talks about those who are trying to destroy his life. And yet the difference between so many of us and God when we pray, when we seek after him, is that we are typically focusing on some kind of desired outcome, something we're hoping for in our circumstances or in our health or in our finances and so on, while God is focusing on us. In other words, we want closeness to God in order to produce some sort of outcome in our lives while God wants closeness to us simply because he wants to be close to us. That is the outcome that he desires. You understand, God's greatest desire for us more than anything else is that we desire him more than everything else. Hence the first and greatest commandment according to Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Mark 12, 30. You see, it's not that he doesn't care about the outcomes that we pray for in our circumstances. He certainly does. It's just that he cares about our relationship with him more. Which begs the question, do we actually feel the same way about God? Which do we care more about, God himself and our relationship with him or what he can do for us? Because again, we tend to seek God most diligently when we're experiencing some kind of weakness or uh, some kind of need or some kind of trouble because we desperately want something to change in our lives. And yet when everything is going well, when we don't necessarily have or at least we don't perceive to have a great need at, at some moment in time, we tend to be far less inclined to seek God in those times because we already have the outcomes we're looking for. The problem with that is God wants us to seek after him not just on our very worst days, but on our very best days. God wants us to seek him first at all times. That is his greatest desire for us. And so just ask yourself, when I'm praying about a need in my life, when I'm praying for some kind of resolution to a problem or some kind of provision or, or for healing or whatever the outcome is that I'm praying for, am I more focused in my prayer and seeking on that outcome that I desire than I am on God himself? I think, I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of us would have to admit that often when we pray and seek God, we're far more focused on the outcome that we're praying for than we are on the God we're praying to. Which means we're not actually seeking Him at all. We're seeking something from Him which is an altogether different pursuit. And David seemed to understand this, by the way, because again, 
when you read the Psalms where he would seek God in troubled times, his relationship with God still always seemed to be his primary concern, even when people were literally trying to kill him. If you go back to Psalm 63, where David is crying out to God in the wilderness of Judah, he begins the Psalm with, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. He doesn't say my flesh faints because people are chasing me or my circumstances seem dire. No, he says my flesh faints for you, God, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. That's how desperate David is for God. Long before he ever mentions anything about his great need for some kind of desired outcome concerning his current circumstances, which were pretty dire, by the way, David first expresses his great need for God himself because he wanted God more than he wanted anything else. Do you understand? That is what God is looking for from us. That we seek him first at all times before we seek anything from him. In bad times and in good times, God wants to be the primary focus of our prayer and our seeking because his greatest desire for us, more than anything else, is that we desire him more than everything else. I'm telling you if, you, if you could just take hold of this perspective on prayer and seeking and allow it to sink in deeply... It will completely change the way you pray. It will change the way you view God. In fact, it will change the way you view your life and your circumstances because you will begin to see everything in your life in light of your relationship with Jesus Christ rather than viewing your relationship with Jesus Christ as a means of obtaining the kind of life that you desire. It's actually the exact opposite way of approaching God that so many Christians approach him today, which is so necessary because I talk to people all the time who have great needs in their lives. And of course, they're diligently praying about those needs as they should be. And yet when the need is not met in the way they wanted it to be or the circumstance they're facing is not resolved in the way they thought it should be, they view all that time and investment spent seeking God as a failure or some kind of mistake like they had it wrong or even as a waste of time. In fact, some people I know have become so disillusioned with God that they leave the faith all because the outcome of their prayers did not meet their desires or expectations. It's exactly what happens when our times of prayer and seeking are focused on outcomes rather than on God himself and our relationship with him. If we don't get the outcome we want, it seems like we did something wrong. Somehow it was a waste. Listen, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other stuff will be added to you. Matthew 6, In other words, when you seek God, keep your focus on God, not on the outcome you're looking for. Seek him first and let him take care of the outcome. Otherwise, you will always be looking for satisfaction in your circumstances rather than finding satisfaction in your relationship with God regardless of your circumstances. This is a lesson uh, that the Israelites had to learn the hard way, as we'll see in our story today, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Judges. This is the penultimate 
message. It's the next to the last sermon in the series. So let's turn to Judges chapter 21, picking the story back up where we left off last week. And if you've been following along, you'll remember from the last chapter that there was a Levite visiting the Benjaminite city of Gibeah with his concubine. And while they were there, men of the city, Benjaminite men, surround the house that the Levite was in, and they demand that the master of the house send the Levite out so that these men could violate him sexually. And so instead, the Levite, in order to save his own skin, he seizes his concubine and he throws her out the door to these men who violate her through the night until morning in the worst possible way when her husband, the Levite, either finds her dead or takes her home and kills her. The text is not exactly clear. But either way, he then cuts her up and sends her body parts to all of the tribes of Israel with the intention of inciting a violent response from the other tribes toward the Benjaminites in retaliation for what they just did to his wife. And so we'll pick the story back up there at chapter 20 as the other tribes of Israel respond now to what they have been sent by this Levite. We'll begin at chapter 20 and read the first 17 verses. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah, and the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all you, give your advice and counsel here. In other words, what are you going to do? And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provision for the people that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they've committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel." But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. And then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss, the men of Israel, apart from, the Benjamin, uh, apart from Benjamin, uh, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword, and all these were men of war. So, 400,000 uh, battle-hardened soldiers from all the tribes of Israel, save Benjamin, of course, 
they amass at Mizpah. Mizpah was an ancient shrine uh, about eight miles north of Jerusalem and just a few miles south of Bethel. Bethel is where the temple and the Ark of the Covenant were at the time, which factors into the story as we go. And there at Mizpah, the chiefs, the leaders of all the tribes of Israel questioned this Levite. Tell us, how did this evil happen? And as he gives his account of uh, the rape and murder of his concubine, notably, he points out that the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house uh, against me by night. Just to be clear, these were not the outcasts of society in Gibeah who committed this horrible act. This wasn't the down and out who were living in the streets. These were the city leaders, right? And then the Levite goes on to explain his own version of what happened that fateful night, of course, conveniently leaving out any mention of his own complicity in the events leading up to this civil war, even though he was the one who seized his concubine and forced her out the door into the middle of a waiting mob. And again, he may have actually been the one who eventually murdered her. We don't know that for sure. At any rate, he gives his version of the story to the leaders of the tribes of Israel who promptly begin to make preparations for war. And so they determine by the casting of lots which 10% of the people will bring provisions, the food and supplies needed for a protracted military campaign. And in case you're wondering why uh, they would do that, right? There's 400,000 of these Israelites and only about 26,000 Benjamites. This should be a quick in and out, an easy job. Well, it's because all of Israel was well aware of exactly what the Benjaminites were capable of militarily. It's alluded to, in fact, all the way back in the blessing of Jacob in Genesis 49, 27, also in the stories of, of uh, Ehud in Judges 3, uh, and Saul in the book of Samuel as well. It's also referenced in 1 Chronicles chapter 8 and chapter 12. The point is everyone knew that the Benjaminites were the special forces. They were the elite fighting men. In fact, among them were 700 chosen men who were left-handed and everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Now, just in case you're picturing your kid out in the yard with his slingshot, you have to understand in the ancient Near East, the sling was actually a formidable weapon. It was used to great effect in the Assyrian, in the uh, Egyptian, in the Babylonian armies, as well as in Israel. In fact, it has been estimated by military historians that stones weighing up to one pound could be projected from a sling by a man with extraordinary accuracy at speeds up to 90 miles per hour. You can imagine a one pound stone coming at you at 90 miles an hour. So the other tribes begin making preparations for what they know could easily turn into an extended fight. Uh, not to mention the fact they're on the Benjaminites' home turf. Uh, it's probably also why they sent delegations through all the tribe of Benjamin saying, what evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. In other words, give up the men who committed this horrible crime and we will put them to death according to the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 17, 12. And then all of this talk of war will be over. We can all go home in peace, boys. But the Benjaminites were having none of it. They were not going to turn over their own leaders to be killed. And as a result, civil war is upon them and the battle lines are being drawn. All because 
this man, this Levite, who clearly cared nothing for his own wife to the point that he would willingly hand her over to an angry mob of men bent on committing unspeakable abuses against her. That same man now supposedly values her memory so much that he rallies the tribes of Israel into an all-out civil war that will end up costing the lives of tens of thousands of his own countrymen, men, women, and children. It makes no sense whatsoever until you understand that his motivation had absolutely nothing to do with the desire for righteousness and everything to do with the desire for revenge. Remember Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But righteousness was the farthest thing from this Levite's mind because he was completely obsessed with a particular outcome to these circumstances more than he was the kingdom of God. And his righteousness, in his mind, this concubine was his property. And the Benjamites took his property away from him against his will. And now he wants all of the Benjaminites to pay with their lives. And yet, as bad as that sounds, in the next part of the story, we find God directing these Israelites to war with their fellow Israelites, these Benjaminites. So it's not as if the outcome that the Levite desires, namely the punishment of these evil men specifically, it's not as if that outcome is wrong. It's his motivation for that outcome that is wrong. You see, when it comes to the circumstances that we face in life, you can desire the right outcome for the wrong reasons. It's partly why it's so important for us when we're seeking God for some desired outcome in a situation that we're facing in life. It's why it is so important that we focus on Christ in our seeking more than the outcome we're hoping for. Because focusing on Christ keeps our motivations pure. Right? When your focus is on Jesus Christ more than anything else. You want what he wants more than everything else. When you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his motivations become yours. Otherwise, you can want all of the right things for all of the wrong reasons. If, you're, if your marriage is in trouble, you can have a desire to stay married for the wrong reasons. To be sure, if you're married, outside of a very short list of cases, God wants you to stay married. That is the right outcome when you are experiencing trouble in your marriage, and yet you can desire that very outcome to stay married for the wrong reasons, for the wrong motivation. Now, I've known couples who cannot stand each other, but they've chosen to stay married because Maybe they own property together and the tax benefits for them outweigh their disdain for one another. I actually had that conversation more than once. Now listen, they should stay married, but not for that reason. Right? It's the right outcome, but the wrong motivation. And likewise, we can try to live our lives as Christians should for all the wrong reasons. You can read your Bible every day. You can pray, you can go to church, you can give in the offering, you can bring your pastor cheesecake, all of the things that good Christians really should be doing. And yet all the while, you could simply be checking off boxes in your mind. 
You see, you can live a very religious life motivated by a sense of moral or religious obligation rather than being motivated by a desperate love for Jesus Christ and his people. There are professing believers who only show up to their churches, their church meetings when they're scheduled to serve on their ministry teams or ministry rotations. Otherwise, they stay home or do something else. You understand, that's being a part of the church out of a sense of obligation rather than being a part of the church because you are desperately in love with Jesus Christ and his people. It's the right outcome, but the wrong motivation, which is exactly what happens when we focus on outcomes rather than focusing on Jesus Christ. Generally speaking, people go where they want to go and do what they want to do as a result of what's in their hearts. If your motivation for being a part of the church is a passion for Jesus Christ and his people, if that truly is what is in your heart, then you will gather with your church family, your brothers and sisters in Christ every chance you get, whether you're scheduled to serve that day or not. That's certainly what we find in the early church, right? Read Acts 2. They met daily in their homes. They met in the synagogue. They met out in public. They met every chance in every place they could because they wanted to be together. They wouldn't dare miss an opportunity to come together to worship and to fellowship and to learn and to give together. Not out of a sense, listen, not out of a sense of religious obligation or because the pastor made them feel guilty. Please hear me. That is not what this is about. This is about you being honest with yourself about why you interact with the church to begin with. Is it a sense of obligation or is it a desperate love for Jesus Christ and his people? Listen, if your motivations are not quite where they need to be, the solution is actually quite simple. When you seek God for something... Focus on him more than you focus on whatever the need is. Put your relationship with Christ before everything else and I promise you, your desires will change. You will begin to want what he wants more than anything else in your life. His greatest desire will become your greatest desire as your relationship with him grows deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper each day. This is what God desires for you more than anything else, that you desire him more than everything else. Let's keep reading, verses 18 through 28. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people of the men of Israel took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went out against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. 
All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? In other words, did we get it wrong, Lord? Because the outcome is not what we've been praying for, even though we're doing what you tell us to do. And the Lord said, Go up for tomorrow. I will give them into your hand. So they go up before God. They seek the Lord concerning the coming battle with the Benjaminites. And yet clearly their focus at this point in seeking God is merely to determine the best approach for the coming battle in order to achieve victory, of course, which is their desired outcome. And God responds. He says, go up. Uh, Judah shall go up first, which makes uh, perfect sense, by the way, from a, a military standpoint, because similar to the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Judah was renowned for its fighting abilities. So the two most militarily capable tribes of Israel square off in battle and the Benjaminites very quickly and very effectively kill 22,000 men of Judah. It's a stunning defeat by a much smaller force. So once again, the 11 tribes go up before the Lord, this time with weeping. So the first time they simply inquired of the Lord as to the best approach to battle. Now they're asking for the same information, but with great emotion of course, given the tremendous losses they've just experienced, even though they did exactly what God told them to do. And so they inquire of God a second time, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, go up against them. So again, the men of Israel go up and fight against the tribe of Benjamin in obedience to God's command. And this time the Benjamites very quickly and very effectively kill 18,000 of their fellow Israelites. You can imagine at this point the brokenness and humility these 11 tribes must be feeling having done exactly what they were told to do by God twice now. And yet both times they've suffered profound losses. So they come before the Lord a third time. Now notice the progression in the way they approach him each time. The first time there was no emotion, there was no humility, there was no repentance, there was no worship, there was no pursuit of a relationship with God whatsoever. They were simply asking for a favorable outcome. The second time they're weakened and broken before God and yet they still make no attempt to seek relationship with him. Just as before, they're focused on experiencing a favorable outcome. In fact, uh, in regard to this second approach, the 19th century German scholar C.F. Kyle wrote that the Israelites were seeking out of pure vain glory to wipe out the stains and the disgrace which their previous defeat had brought upon them. So still no real humility, no repentance, no worship, no pursuit of relationship with their God. The third time, however, well, that was altogether different. This time all the people of Israel, the whole army went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. 
You see, the brokenness before God, the stillness in his presence, the waiting upon him, the fasting, the burnt offerings, the peace offerings, they were all signs of true repentance and worship and a desire for reconciliation and a renewed relationship with God. For the first time in the story, the Israelites are finally seeking God first. They were seeking relationship with him before anything else. And only after that did they inquire of the Lord about the battle for a third time. And we'll talk about what happens next in just a moment. But let's not miss the fact that even though the Israelites were doing what God was telling them to do, precisely what he was telling them to do, the first two times they engaged in battle, they were still not achieving the outcome they were after. Why? Because when it comes to the circumstances that we face in this life, doing what is right does not guarantee the outcome you desire. I wish it did. I'm telling you, this one can be a hard pill to swallow because we all want to believe that if we do the right thing, we will achieve the desired outcome. But that is not always the case. In fact, not by a long shot. I'm certain the Apostle Paul did not want to be stoned at Lystra for preaching the gospel or beheaded by Nero, but he was. I don't think Jesus' disciple James wanted to be executed in Jerusalem or Peter imprisoned there for their obedience to the command of Christ to spread his word, but they were. I doubt John wanted to be exiled on the island of Patmos or Stephen martyred or Andrew and Peter crucified or Philip tortured to death or James clubbed to death or Matthias burned to death or Thomas stabbed to death. But they were for being obedient to the Great Commission. You understand, doing what is right is not a guarantee that everything will turn out the way you want it to. But listen, it will absolutely bring you closer to Christ if you stay focused on him, which is the entire point of obedience. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him, John 14, 23, that is the very definition of relationship. You see, obedience is primarily about drawing us closer to Christ, not achieving some desired outcome in our circumstances, which is just what we see here with the Israelites. They were obedient to God's command in battle, and although they did not experience the desired outcome, the first two attempts, Ultimately, their obedience to God, as hard as that was, and as much as it cost them, it led them back into a relationship with God, which was the whole point to begin with. Listen, that's the point of obedience in our lives today. It's not primarily about getting what we want. It's getting closer to him. That's why the apostle John wrote by this, we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments, relationship, obedience, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. 1 John 2, 3 through 5. Obedience has everything to do with relationships. So look, you can find yourself in very difficult 
circumstances in life and do everything as righteously as you know to do and still not achieve the outcome you are hoping for. But what you will find, if you choose to focus on Christ instead of the outcome that you desire in that circumstance, you will find that your relationship with him will grow deeper through it no matter what the final outcome of that circumstance is, which again is the whole point to begin with. The truth is, actually, God will allow all sorts of things to happen in your life, even very hard things, for the express purpose of drawing you closer to him. Why would he do that? Because he loves you. And he wants you to have a relationship with him more than he wants you to have anything else in your life. He wants you to have a relationship with him more than he wants you to have any of the other things you're praying for. We heard it in the video before the sermon. Jesus said to Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness, Seven, uh, 2 Corinthians twelve nine. That's just what we see here in the story, isn't it? His power increasing in his people, the more their weaknesses are exposed and they are increasingly obedient to him. The whole point is to stop focusing on outcomes and start focusing on him. It's not that he doesn't care about the outcomes. He most certainly does. But he cares about your relationship with him more. And by the way, it is in that relationship with Christ that you will find everything you need to navigate your way through your circumstances, whatever they are. Your relationship with Christ is where you will find the strength you need to continue. That is where you'll find the peace that cannot be explained. That is where you will find the wisdom that will guide you. That is where you will find freedom from your bondage. That is where you will find provision to see you through. That is where you will find healing from your hurt and joy in the midst of trouble. And that is where you will find the love of Christ that he says surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, Ephesians 3.19. Are you getting this? This is what God is offering us. And yet none of it can be found in favorable circumstances alone. The fullness of God in your life can only be found in Jesus Christ, which is why God's greatest desire for you more than anything else is that you desire him more than everything else. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 29 to the end of the chapter. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Merigaba. And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all of Israel, and the battle was hard, but the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. 
And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. Now this is where the story should stop. But it doesn't. And so we have the last part of this chapter, and as you'll see next week, a gigantic mess in the last chapter of the book. If they'd just stopped right here in their obedience to God, everything would have been fine. So now the rest of the chapter is going back before what we just read to tell us how they defeated them. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush who they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the, the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they're defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise up out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned and the men of Benjamin were dismayed for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noah as far as the opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all these men of valor. They turned and fled toward the wilderness, toward the rock of Rimmon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to guide them, and 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon and remained at the rock of Rimmon four months. This is where they should have stopped. Again, we're back to where we were. They've now defeated the army, the men of valor, the fighting men, the ones who came out to battle have been defeated. That's the outcome God was handing you. It's the last verse where they get themselves in trouble and the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men, beasts, and all that they found and all the towns that they found they set on fire. So the Israelites engaged the Benjamites in battle a third time. Obviously through brilliant military strategy and the sovereign hand of God, the Benjaminites are defeated. And by the way, if you're having trouble with the math here uh, in terms of how many uh, Benjaminites there were and how many were killed because the numbers don't perfectly add up in the chapter, these were battle estimates. In fact, uh, I was looking at the, the Vaticanists. It's the oldest extant manuscript that we have of the Septuagint, the, the Greek Old Testament. It's written on 759 leaves of vallum, animal skin, dating all the way back to the 4th century. It reports that there were 23,000 Benjaminites that day, while the Alexandrinus, a slightly newer manuscript from the 5th century of the Septuagint, says there were 25,000 Benjaminites and of course, the translation that we're using here puts the number somewhere between 25 and 27,000 men. The point being, these are battle estimates reported on before, during, and after the war had ended. So there's no need to get hung up uh, on exact numbers because the truly relevant information 
is the fact that the Israelites almost completely wiped out the existence of the Benjaminite tribe altogether. Right? However many of them there actually were. And they would have completely wiped them out had not the 600 escaped to the Rock of Rimmon. Now here's why this is so important. Because the 11 tribes were applying what is known as the Kerem principle in this war with the tribe of Benjamin, even though God never commanded them to do so. The Kerem principle was something that God commanded the Israelites to apply to the Canaanites in their initial conquest of the promised land. The word Kerem in the ancient Hebrew is a word, it's a noun that referred to something uh, that was set apart as sacred property and when used in its verb form, as it is in chapter 6, verse 18 of the book of Joshua, during the Israelites' conquest of Canaan, it describes this special action of setting uh, something apart permanently as the property of God, either for service or for total destruction. And so when entire cities or entire populations in ancient times were placed under Kerem by God, that usually involved the complete annihilation of that city and its people. By the way, that wasn't unique just to the Israelites. In the Mesha Stele or the Moabite Stone, which is located in modern-day Jordan, we have 9th century inscriptions that describe King Mesha of Moab capturing Israelite cities and putting them under Kerem. Total destruction in order to honor, in their case, the Moabite god Chemish. Now, without a doubt, there were times when Yahweh commanded his people to apply the Kerem principle to their enemies. The problem with the story today is this wasn't one of those times. God sent them out to defeat the Benjaminite army, not to completely wipe out the entire tribe off the face of the earth. And as we'll see in the next chapter, this turns out to be an epic mistake by the 11 tribes. You see, if they just stopped after the initial defeat, they would have been okay. But rather than continuing to seek God's guidance on the matter after the battle was won, the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, all that they found and all the towns that they found. They set on fire. That's men, women, children, livestock, cities, homes, everything was destroyed. They applied Kerem to their fellow Israelites, even though God only commanded Kerem upon the Canaanites. And again, as we'll see next week, the cost couldn't be higher. By the way, archaeologists have discovered massive destruction at the site of Gibeah dating back to the time period this war occurred according to scripture. So even our modern findings confirm the total and complete annihilation of Gibeah. This fatal mistake by the 11 tribes, the cost of which will be determined in the next chapter, all came about because they failed to seek God after the initial defeat of the Benjaminites was secured. They continued to act far beyond their mandate, far beyond anything that God had commanded them to do. And I'm telling you, we do the exact same thing today in our lives after we experience success in difficult circumstances. When it comes to the circumstances we face in this life, achieving the outcome you desire is not the time to stop seeking God. In other words, when you, when you do experience the outcome, the success you're looking for in your circumstances, don't stop seeking God just because you got what you wanted. 
And oh, that's exactly what so many of us do. We think that once the great need is met or the disaster is averted, there's no longer any need to pursue God with the same vigor or passion as when life seemed to be falling apart. But that simply is not true. You see, your life is an ongoing conversation with God. At least it should be. That is his desire for you, that you don't just seek him when times are tough, but you seek him when everything is going your way, that you seek him in failure and you seek him in success, that you seek him on your worst days and you seek him on your best days, that in all your ways you acknowledge him and he will make straight your path, Proverbs 3, 6. In all your ways, that is God's greatest desire for you more than anything else, that you desire him more than everything else, which means seeking him at all times and focusing on him at all times more than any outcome you could ever possibly desire in the circumstances you face throughout life. Unfortunately, the Israelites once again were more focused on outcomes than they were on God, and the result is pure disaster. Right at the end of the day, it all boils down to whether or not God is your greatest desire. Because his desire for you, his greatest desire for you more than anything else is that you desire him more than everything else. So just take a moment and be honest with yourself. When you pray, when you seek God, is most of that time spent focused on the outcomes you desire for circumstances in your life, or is the bulk of that time in prayer and seeking focused on Jesus Christ himself? What is your greatest desire? If it is anything other than Jesus Christ, then you are pursuing a life that is infinitely less than the one he's offering you. Do You see, there's nothing in this life Nothing. There's nothing you could ever desire for yourself that could even hold a candle to what God desires for you. And God's greatest desire for you is himself. That you would desire him more than anything and everything else. And yet we spend a massive portion of our lives desiring outcomes to circumstances more than we desire a relationship with Jesus Christ. And in the process, we are missing out on the very best that he has to offer us. A spirit-led life full of power and love and peace and joy and strength and wisdom and fulfillment. That's a life that can only be found in him. It is a life that far surpasses any you could ever hope to achieve apart from him. It is a life full of purpose that cannot be found anywhere else. It is a life that satisfies like no other can. It is a life that exceeds every expectation and transcends every other longing of our hearts. And it is the very life that God is offering you today. And it's yours. It is yours for the taking. When you desire him more than every other thing in your life. Let's pray.